I'm Teresa Clark. I was born in Los Angeles, California, to an African-American family. And this year marks 20 years that I've been living, working, and traveling on the, on the African continent. That's, thank you. It's been my privilege. I've spent most of that time in South Africa, where I lived for several years, and where I have dual citizenship. About a decade ago, I started spending time in Nigeria, and now I spend about, yes, yes, I knew this crowd would like that. I spend about three to four weeks in Lagos every year now. And I've also traveled to about 25 countries on the continent. About three years ago, as was mentioned, I left my investment banking job and I founded Africa.com, where I am the chairman and the executive editor. And I have the responsibility and the privilege of guiding the way three million people from over 200 countries around the world see Africa every month. Our best product is something we call our top 10. We curate the news across Africa. Our editors read everything in Africa and globally, and we decide what the top 10 stories were for that day or that week. And then we summarize them, and we give you a link back to them. So please check it out. You can see it on Africa.com. You can sign up to get it pushed to your email. It's all free. So come visit us on Africa.com. So before I start, I want to tell a little story. How many of you have gone on a cruise? Have there people in this room have been going on cruises? Let me see by hands. Raise your hand if you've been on a cruise. There are a lot of people who've been going on cruises. All my African friends all of a sudden are going on cruises. It's a huge market now. Africans on cruises. <laughs> And so they have these new cruises that go along Africans' coasts. You know, it used to be that you had to go to the Caribbean, you had to go to Mexico to go on a cruise, but now they have these great cruises, and some of them are themes. They've got jazz cruises and R&B cruises, they've got cruises that have Afro-funk and all kinds of hip-hop music, and there's this cruise that goes down the east coast of Africa, and it's wonderful for Africans. They've got they really understand their market. They've got food that's hot and spicy to please the African palate. They start up in Kenya, in Mombasa. They go out to the Seychelles. They come back to Tanzania. They hit Zanzibar. They go down to Maputo. Then they go out to Mauritius. They come back to South Africa, go to Durban, and end in Cape Town. What a fabulous cruise, right? So this cruise ship was coming back from Mauritius towards South Africa. And on its way, the captain noticed that the ship was taking on water. And so he decided to protect all of his passengers. And he made an announcement over the PA system and said, everybody go to the deck and prepare to board the lifeboats. Everybody was very frantic. They moved to the deck. They were ready to board the lifeboats. And then the PA system went out. So he sent his number two down to tell the people to get into the lifeboats. And the number two goes down, and he comes back, and he says to the captain, I did it, but no one would listen to me. And so the captain says, OK, you stay here, man the helm. I'll go down. He goes down. He comes back five minutes later. His number two said, well, how did you do it? He said, well, I had to explain to people what it meant to get into the lifeboats. So for the Kenyans, I explained that it was traditional. <laughs> for the Ivorians, I explained that it was fashionable, fashionable. <laughs> for the African-Americans, I told them that it was an order from Barack Obama. <laughs> and for the Nigerians, I told them that if they got into the boats, they could make money. <laughs> <laughs> so 
So this is a little preview of what I want to talk about, that which divides us and that which unite, unites us. I'll tell you a little bit about um, what I think we should be thinking about and questions that I ask myself. Why do we have a continent of a billion people and yet we have such a small voice in geopolitics? Why do we have a continent that is richer than any continent on the earth and yet we have poor people? Why do we have this incredible diaspora, 200 million people of African descent throughout the world? I mean, that's two-thirds the size of the United States. We have these people as our ambassadors, champions, advocates throughout the world. And yet, we have such a small voice in geopolitics. Let me ask you, by a show of hands, how many of you think that there's a gap between what you know is your potential, the potential of your family, your cohorts, your colleagues, and what we achieve as a collective as Africans. Raise your hand and say, I, if you think there's a gap. Okay. Let me ask you another question. When you think about that gap and you think about the diaspora collective, how many of you think that if others in the diaspora possessed more of your skills, your drive, your energy, your enthusiasm, your integrity, your values, how many of you think if others in the diaspora had more of what you have, we would achieve more? Raise your hands and say, aye, if you think so. Aye, many people. Okay. Well, I've been thinking about this. And I've been thinking about why are these things the way they are. I've given it a tremendous amount of thought. I've spoken to Africans on the continent. I've spoken to African-Americans, I've spoken to Africans in Europe, I've spoken to Africans in Latin America, I've spoken to Brazilians, to, to people from the Caribbean. I had an opportunity to moderate a group of 50 young, dynamic African leaders at the Africa 2.0 session a few months ago. We moderated a conversation about laying out a plan, a blueprint for the future of Africa. We had a fabulous blueprint, but underlying it, there was something something that just didn't make sense, something that we knew was going to be a challenge to actually executing and implementing these great plans. You know, you think about what it takes to actually get something done, and it's more than just what's written on paper. There are softer issues at play. There's a need to really think about how you're going to make that dream happen. Why doesn't it happen? Well, it's what I call the diaspora divide. The diaspora divide, the ways in which we divide ourselves. We know the many ways we've been divided by colonialists over time. But beyond that, we own a certain division from one another. We choose to see each other as being very different. This is something that we own. We have wonderful, educated people amongst us who can lay out fantastic blueprints. We know history. We know how the Roman Empire achieved global domination with fewer people and fewer natural resources than we have. But yet, we don't know how to actually make it happen. 
We need to have a collective and cooperative will. Let's think about what would happen if we bridged that divide. If we were successful in doing so, we would have the opportunity to change our story. Our story at the table of geopolitics and economics looks like this right now. We show up and we say we're a continent of a billion people spread out across 54 countries with a lot of poverty, a lot of challenges to executing things. We have these 54 countries which are often ill-governed and the resources are not wisely used. And by the way, we've got a bunch of people around the world. Oftentimes, they are minorities in the countries in which they live. They are often part of the underclass. Their wealth is less than the average in those countries. And often, they don't have much political power. Now, as Chinua Achebe wrote, if you don't like someone's story, write your own. So let's think about how we can rewrite that story as our own. If we were to come together, and I'm not here as an advocate for the African Union or to discuss African Union politics, but let's for a moment imagine that we're going to let the African Union speak for this collective. The African Union could show up at that table, at the UN, at the World Bank, and say, we are here as one collective force. We have a continent of a billion people. We have tremendous wealth. Our wealth commands something like 65% of the world's diamonds, 50% of the world's gold, and 10% of the world's oil. We've got fantastic advocates throughout the world. In Latin America, in Brazil, for example, we have 100 of the 200 million people are of African descent. They serve as our advocates there. In the United States, we've got champions. 14% of the population, 40 million people, they're our advocates there. The Caribbean, we have 75% of the population, another 22 million people there. We're coming to the table as a strong, united force to be reckoned with. Different story, isn't it? Well, let's talk about this diaspora divide. And let me start by telling you a personal story. When I moved to South Africa nearly 20 years ago, I was to run the South African office of a company that did a lot of work with the US government. It was my first week on the job, and I was meant to meet the representative from the U.S. government and to talk to him about how we were going to get contracts from him. We had a lovely meeting. He happened to be a white American. We talked about business, and when it was over, he said, well, I wish you well. Welcome to South Africa. Enjoy the great quality of life that this country offers. I hope you do well in building your company to be significant, this region to be significant for your company. But because you're African-American, there's one more thing I need to caution you. Don't think that you're going to become friends with the Africans here. You're not like them. You have nothing in common with them. They won't accept you. Don't make the mistake that other black Americans make. Don't think that you're going to have some notion of brotherhood or sisterhood. Don't think you're going to find Kunta Kinte. <laughs> That's not going to happen. They won't accept you. You're different. Now, by the way, I'll mention that down in Cape Town, there are these people called the Cape Coloreds. You know, they're kind of like the African-Americans. You know, they're sort of mixed heritage, and you know, they don't have any history or culture, and they've got a lot of alcoholism that goes along with it. You, you might make some kinship with them. <laughs> well, I was young. You know, I didn't know how to react. 
I packed up my things, I said that I had another meeting, and I scooted off. Well, for many years, I've looked back on that meeting, and I've come up in my own mind with a dozen clever things I should have said to debunk his ignorance and his attempts to divide me from my people. Divide. Divide and conquer. We know this is an effective strategy. It's such an effective strategy that computer programmers use this notion. If you have a big program that you need the computer to figure out, programmers have an acronym for it. It's DNC, divide and conquer. They take the problem, they divide it into small pieces so that the computer can better conquer smaller problems than the big one. Well, we know that this doesn't apply only to computers. It has its roots in sociology and how societies dominate other societies, divide and conquer. Let's take a look at some places where this has been particularly effective. I mentioned Brazil. When we think about the diaspora, many of us don't think about Brazil as being the place outside of Africa where there are more Africans than anywhere else. There are 100 million people in Brazil. And yet, do we, you know, why don't they have a black president? 50% of the population. There are no household names of famous Brazilians that we know, other than one guy who made his fame in soccer decades ago named Pele. It's the only black Brazilian that I know. The government of Brazil did a survey of its people and asked them to categorize themselves into racial categories. The survey results showed, and this is for the black population, 146 categories. Okay, now we know that there are blacks, people of African descent, and they mix with Europeans, so we could have blacks and mixed race, and that would cover pretty much everybody. But there were 146. Some of them were absurd. One of them was so absurd that it was, the, when translated from Portuguese into English, it said, I'm actually one-eighth black, but because I spend a lot of time in the skin, my skin tone would suggest that I'm half black. <laughs> absurd. Talk about divide and conquer. They're all fighting with each other, trying to stay one up on the totem pole. What a great way to keep them busy. That's why we've never heard of anybody besides Pele. <laughs> Let's take a look at other places where divide and conquer has been effective. And every time I talk about this, I want you to repeat with me the diaspora divide. What happens in Brazil is an example of... It just goes on and on. There are a lot of Nigerians here. You all know what JJC means. Johnny, just come. Those who've been at home divide themselves from those who've been away. The ones who come home, no, they're different. Johnny, just come. We divide ourselves in countless ways. I think about South Africans. South Africans talk about going to Africa. It's someplace else. <laughs> I was in Ethiopia a few weeks ago. There was a soccer match between Ethiopia and the DRC. Someone asked an Ethiopian who won the, um, the game. The Ethiopian responded, the Africans. <laughs> Colin Powell was criticized because in an interview talking about his African-American heritage, he distanced himself from African-Americans by pointing out that even though he was born in New York, in Harlem, his parents were from Jamaica, so he was different. Another way to divide. We've really got to think about this. 
The media sends very strong signals. Africans look across the water to African Americans, and they think that they're lazy, unproductive, people involved in drugs who spend half their lives behind bars. A friend of mine, an African friend of mine, confessed that when she went across to go to school, her parents warned her from getting involved with that crowd. African Americans are just as ignorant looking across the ocean the other way. African Americans think that Africans are backwards, barbaric people who are fraught with disease and despair. We really have to look at how we can bridge this diaspora divide. When you look at it, we have more in common than you think. The Minister of Finance from Nigeria was here today, and she started off with a way that got everyone here excited, and that was a common rhythm. That's one thing that, that, that certainly brings us together. Madiba certainly understood that, and the whole world danced when he danced. But there are other things, culture, that brings us together. I've never been any place in Africa where there wasn't a deep respect for the elders. There's no part of the diaspora or Africa that doesn't respect elders. We respect those who've passed on. The entire community comes to support, whether you knew the deceased or not. Mothers are important wherever you are on the continent. There are other cultures where fathers may be it, but we honor our mothers. The community looks after children wherever you are in the diaspora or in Africa. The notion that it takes a village to raise a child is translated from Swahili. We often live in places where we don't have social safety nets, and those with means end up being the social safety net. An African or a member of the diaspora with means pays school fees for many children, helps out with hospital bills and in emergencies. This is common wherever you go. And so I ask us to Focus not on what divides us, but focus on what unites us. And specifically, I'm going to give you a call to action. How do we do this? One, please, let's all learn more about cultures within the diaspora. It's what we don't know that we accept, the ignorance that the media feeds us, that leads us to these views. Second, I ask everyone, as a New Year's resolution, reach out to someone elsewhere in the diaspora or across the continent. Get to know someone from another part of our African heritage. And the third thing I ask you to do is to honor the success of those within the diaspora. There's nothing like success to bring us together. I think about a conference I was at in the mid-90s at a conference center in South Africa where on a golf course. And at that time, the golf courses still were being played mainly by whites, and all the caddies and help were black. And I remember that moment when Tiger Woods won his first Masters, and all of the black caddies and staff, they were all African-American. I think about when Alex Weck graced the first cover of Vogue magazine. We were all South Sudanese. I think about when Kofi Annan became Secretary General of the United Nations. We were all Ghanaian. When Barack Obama was elected president of the United States, the texts and emails I got from across the continent, we were all African-American. And today, 48 hours after we've lost 
one of the world's greatest leaders. We are all South African. As we think about Madiba, he's often couched in one of two ways. Clearly, he belongs to his people of South Africa, but he's so much bigger than that. He's one for the ages who belongs to the world. But I'm going to ask this group here today to join me in claiming him as owning him as part of Africans and the diaspora. He is ours. He had a quote that I'd like to mention. It's not one that I've seen frequently, but this quote says, because there are so many ways that the world is divided in many ways, on many lines, let us use this opportunity to bring us together for a common cause. Bridging the is one such way that I think that we can honor him. Remember, let us focus not on that which divides us, but on that which unites us. Thank you.